0: Tremendous from all angles. No, you're nice. I also thought mm. you restaurant last night. I watched...
1: It was rubbish. The game was th- very poor. I didn't
0: think it was, that, but I quite like mm. tense football.
1: Yes. Tactical. I think we, Did we cover the tactics enough? Did I get enough mentions of how oh, they were playing? That's great... all I could do. I couldn't go anywhere else because nothing else happened.
0: There was a lovely bit of banter with Dean Smith that I enjoyed.
1: Oh, about the who would sign for Dean Smith. Who wouldn't uh, sign for Dean Smith. Yes. Did you hear about the um, saying Scott Parker had aged 10 years since he'd been in charge of uh, Fulham? And I said, that's why I never went into coaching because I wanted to keep my boyish good looks. (laughs) And Weaver said, you have to have them to lose them. (laughs) Killed the joke stone dead.
2: Did you happen to hear my question to Joe Bryan this morning? Really thoughtful, carefully couched. I said about the fact that you're 40 yards out, you've got 105 minutes worth of running in your legs.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: you've got to you've got to be able to you know have a good amount of technique but also you know you've got to kick it hard enough to get to get that in you didn't say kick it hard enough to no no i didn't i I didn't but he did say in response i've played football for quite a while so i can now kick it quite hard (laughs) yeah but he
1: did say because we 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 said about the second goal where he did a lot of running and sprinting and johnny oaks after the game said it's amazing that state. And he said, I'm quite fit, you know. I've done a lot of running. So again, he seems to have saying, I'm quite fit. It's no surprise I can run. And actually, I've been playing football a long time. So no surprise I can kick the ball. It's clearly a theme.
0: He's, he's, he thinks people are getting at him. Is he not meant, meant to be... Is Joe Bryan not one of those famous, quite a good lad footballers?
2: Yes, it would. It would well, it would transpire that way. He, he gave a lot of amusing answers. Well, he has given a yeah. lot of amusing answers over the course of the last 24 hours. But I don't know how Chinch feels, uh, you mm. know, being only the second best free kick taker inside Wembley last night. who yeah, also but I'm, is not left I'm not being
1: funny. I'm not being funny. How hard was that to score? If you can kick it <laughs> with your left foot, as free kicks go... That what is
2: is that hard? You that said hard? on the commentary what? that it was extraordinary technique with 105 minutes of running in. Is that yes. to be able to? Yeah, but he had been told hard. to do it.
1: But he had been told to do it as well, which I think takes away all the brilliance of it. If he'd come up with it himself and kind of seen what the keeper had done, but apparently Scott Parker had said to him, "Look at the keeper's position; you can catch him out if he's near." So we've been told what to do by his
2: coach. Oh, no, no, no. He spotted it whilst watching and no, put on telly. No, he didn't. During the semi-final, that's what he said. He said that he spotted. No, no, he no. Ray's positioning.
1: No, he was told what to do. Scott Parker said, did do 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 but try No, he and did on he the it, night. That's why he did it. That's why he, he did, did it. He did on
2: the night, but they had already, yeah. already been practicing it throughout the week beforehand. Yeah, but it wasn't his own. He didn't think of it
1: himself. It was told what to do. Kick it hard with your left foot and try and score in the near post. He was told to do that, and that takes away all the brilliance of it. Really,
2: yeah, trying to build up the <laughs> uh, the non physical prowess of a left back, and you are ruining it. Mm-hmm.
1: But if you see, my, if you compare that goal to my goal against QPR, and the <laughs> levels of difficulty, yeah, that my, that my free kick is better than his free kick. Also, the levels of body fat. <laughs> Considering I've got to wobble up to the ball and try and stop my belly from knocking me off balance before I strike it. You're absolutely
2: correct. Have you, um, have you seen this news, by the way? Um, and it comes from one of our more sarcastic contributors, Matthew Plunkett in L.A. Um, I submit this fact for your consideration. One of the five judges for the Man Booker Prize is none other than Lee Child. Right. I'll give you a second to reread that, he says. Well, I won't bother. One of the great literary prizes of the English-speaking world has turned 20% of its reputation to the man behind Jack Effing Reacher. What's next? National team managers handing out international caps to mediocre left-backs, he says, I don't like rhetorically.
1: Him. I don't like him. I don't like him. Let's, let's ostracise him. Is he Can we do that? Zoom chinch, is he? He's not a buffalo, is he? Can he be well, de-buffaloed if he is?
2: Yeah, No, he's not. Oh.
1: Can't we take him out onto the great American plains and shoot him?
0: Not
1: legally, ah, <laughs> oh, but illegally we could do, so we could
2: still do it. This is Set Piece Money, the podcast where four friends, back on lockdown, talk football over food. I'm Hugh Ferris. Joining me are three people who are a total of about six miles away, but because of very localized restrictions handed down to us by the UK government, they are all on Zoom. They are Stephen Wyeth, Plan A; Rory Smith, Plan B; and Andy Hinchcliffe, Rose Ed. Oh,
1: hang on, uh, hang on, whoa, whoa, whoa! I didn't. Uh, uh, Plan C would have been, that's not fair, is it?
2: I don't, I don't know if Plan C is any better than Rosette. Apologies, by the way, for being late this week. This is as a result of um, both Stephen and Andrew traversing the length of the country yesterday. Uh, one, because, well, Stephen wanted to be back in lockdown after having a week in Devon. And uh, also, Chinch had to be at Wembley.
1: Yeah, I was paid to be there and it was a pretty tough game to cover so I I could always console myself with the fact that I'm being paid to watch this tripe it wasn't tripe it was a highly entertaining championship playoff final
0: the thing is that the 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 judgments aren't fair because those games are always entertaining because they're so tense you don't you Mm. don't watch them expecting free-flowing football The, the the entertainment value is in how terrified everybody is do you think most people feel that way Rory yes I think people like tense football like tense even if it's not very good yeah but it, well, it doesn't need to be good if it's tense that's the thing that the standard is irrelevant if it's just if if everyone feels as though everything really matters so if you had a
1: season of really tense football rather than free flowing lots of goals you, that's a season to remember
0: but you can't have a season full of really tense football can you you only you only you only really get it in tournaments it's why it's like even when you get like a really boring world cup semi final Mm. you actually watch it and you're kind of compelled by it because it's so tense.
3: Chinch, you're not going to become one of those commentators who feels entitled to be entertained every time they turn up to a football match. As though, yeah. Chinch is here, play for me, boys. Like, like
1: Maximus, am I not entertained? No, I'm not. No, I, Again, I just, I just knuckle down, talk about the tactics, talk about individuals, great stories, great insight. So it isn't always about... Whether Joe Bryan can kick the ball in from 40 yards away. He's been told to do that. So that's why he did it. I, I, I go to a whole new level. But that's why I am Europe's greatest co commentator, <laughs> I would say. No, the world, world's greatest co commentator. I haven't heard any Argentinian co commentators. So I, I could have to change my mind if I heard someone who's better than me from South America.
3: By the way, have you, have you noticed that Chinch has changed his name on the Zoom yes. chat window yeah. to leading co coms who's oh isn't, oh nikki's been on this computer
1: Oh, primrose <laughs> leading co-coms well that's apt isn't it but that was
0: definitely not me
2: would anybody like to describe their most recent meal and that will take the form of the food for today's podcast can
0: i tell you about my lunch i'll tell, I'll tell you my lunch story so i, I was in i was in Bergamo for three days and I put quite a lot of pressure on myself when I'm in Italy to eat nice food because it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a pleasure to eat proper Italian food. So I, had a, I had a really nice pizza one night. had some lovely, I think they're called cassoncelli. It's a type of, of pasta that's typical of Bergamo. That was lovely. That was one night. And anyway, I was wandering around the, um, the city on Tuesday lunchtime, thinking, right, what shall I have for my final meal? I need, need to have, have a meal and then go and get maybe two ice creams afterwards mm. to, to kind of just truly, then a coffee, to truly kind of take, take away enough of Italy with me to get me through the next few weeks. And um, I stopped at this place that looked quite nice, it's quite small, it looked it had, it, good market quality, I only had four or five dishes that it did. And I sat down and I said, do I need to come inside to order? And the woman said yes. So I went in and it turned out that all of the dishes were already prepared and stored in, in like a glass cabinet and then you chose one and they heated it up. And I thought, mm, that's not ideal. So I had the lasagna, only really a small portion. And then I asked for, there's this stuff called lemon soda that you get in Italy, which is actually a fizzy lemon drink, and it is the devil's nectar. It's, it's extraordinary. And I asked for a lemon soda, and the woman said, oh, no, we don't, we don't have lemon soda. We've only got Schweppes. And normally what they mean by that is we've got Schweppes lemon, but she brought me Schweppes tonic, which is not lemon-flavoured, it's tonic-flavoured. And to be honest, between the kind of reheated lasagna and the, the tonic water that I hate, I was disappointed so i felt i felt that i owed it to myself and to the nation of italy to get up pay and immediately go and have another lunch <laughs> <laughs> so i went and found a uh, like a, a it was a really nice place actually it was like a, it did like piadina and focaccia and pizza but i had ham field mushrooms and some sort of quite soft cheese inside a freshly baked focaccia with a sweet lemon not a lemon soda I was still quite disappointed um, and it was delicious, but basically I ate so much in the span of 45 minutes at lunchtime yesterday that I have not had a meal since.
3: Rory two lunches Smith.
0: Only, on, only might, on special occasions. That might stick. The, I think, I think if, you have a, if you're on holiday, this is an important point of principle for me, if you're on holiday and you have a bad meal, I think you are entitled to go and have another meal immediately.
2: Hang on a minute, you, on holiday...
1: Sorry, at work.
2: <laughs> oh, my thank you. God. Ah, and well, we and, didn't and slip there. And, and, like, important knockout football. It doesn't necessarily matter if the quality isn't there as long as the tension is. And you can always, you can always deal with that tension by just thank, going... Thank I mean, God his boss isn't an avid listener. <laughs> <laughs>
0: He'll be fine when I file the copy. He'll be fine.
2: <laughs> so that's the food the football is. Chinch, do you know what we're talking about today?
1: Oh, yes, indeed. I've been very busy over the last couple of days, so I've not been as focused on the WhatsApp group when you were talking about what we were going to be talking about. So, I, is it something to do with what's happened this season or
0: not? More importantly, Chinch, why did you say that with an Italian accent? You said, <laughs> you I've, know, been I, yeah. I've been very
1: busy. I've been
0: very busy. But again, you're going to hear Italy everywhere you go now,
1: don't you? That's because true. You've, been, you've basically been immersed been immersed yeah. in yeah. Italy.
2: He's been dipped in two lunches. <laughs> uh, Chinch, we um, we're talking about this just for your information and everybody else's. Having looked back last week with our hot takes and takeaways episode, why not flip that particular coin and consider how they, those takes and takeaways, might be carried forward? We spend a little bit of time talking about five subs, for example, and more on that in a moment. But so far, that appears to be one of the very few relatively concrete ideas that'll be adopted beyond this unique season, and that has not been met with anything like universal acclaim, certainly not on this podcast. So it is time to talk about the lessons and legacy of the COVID-19 dominated season 1920 and how we're going to end up ignoring them all. Um, you can get in touch with the podcast, gmail.com is our email address. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook and YouTube. Um, first, just to hoover up a couple of strands related to the Set Piece Menu Premier League Predictions League, which was as exciting as ever, and not just because Chinch would have won if none of the new bonus point rules had been introduced. <laughs> Timely. Indeed, Best Man Billy reminds us that the top five teams were reliant on position moves on the final day of the Premier League season. The top two both had Bournemouth finishing 18th as their wild card, so it not... Were it not for Everton's complete disinterest in their final game, the champion and the runner-up would not be celebrating. And Chinch actually might have been. So all good things, you know. Firstly, and most importantly, remember the player with the most spot-on predictions was an entrant known only as Manuel with a question mark as his team name. Well, this email comes from a Manuel Cuache. I hope I'm getting that right, Manuel. Having surpassed by far and expectations I had going into my debut season at SPN PLPL, I was pleasantly surprised to get a mention on the last episode. While I now wish I'd put a bit more thinking into my team name, I quite enjoyed the mystery of the question mark, and it's been so long a season that I don't remember how or why I ended up using it in the first place. Cheers, and he says, Manuel, not from Barcelona. Although he didn't actually say where he is from, which is slightly unfortunate. But also,
0: how can we verify that that's the real person?
2: There is no way of, of well, there is a way of verifying it via, you know, something that completely breaches data protection rules, probably. But, I mean,
0: I I could sit here and say that actually that was my team, and and I've just been sitting on it. It's a secret. Uh, It it isn't
1: true, though, is it, Rory? It is. It's definitely true. Oh, you slid. You slid like jelly down a wall down that league table. (laughs) To be fair. And you you were embarrassed and shamed by my good self. I'm still loading it. Even well after the event, I am still... It.
3: You've yeah. never been as active on the WhatsApp group chat as you were in the immediate aftermath of discovering your so-called triumph.
1: There was a flurry, Steve. There were three three posts, and uh, since then, probably very
3: little. Yeah, that's probably that's about a month's worth. Yes.
2: Yeah. yes, you now know what it's like to put something on the WhatsApp group and have one of the group at least completely ignoring it. Um, <laughs> secondly, and much less importantly, Best Man Billy was also able to provide some textual evidence that Stephen... Was an original supporter of the wild card system. To what? quote Stephen on a WhatsApp mm, group, a different WhatsApp group. Yes, the wild card thing will make it interesting. He says with no hint of irony or sarcasm. And then further, Ah, yes, I like the new wild card system. The clever slash brave could potentially be rewarded, comma bigly he says, with, again, no sarcasm or irony, but at the time, something at least contemporaneously humorous. Yes, yes. Topical satire
0: from Stephen. Like satire
2: in, in August of 2019. Do I get a right to reply here? No. Uh, you do? Uh, it will be ignored in the final reckoning, but please, go ahead.
3: As I explained to best man Billy, you and he had come up with some really harebrained schemes for the new season of SPM at PL, PL and eventually my spirit was broken by the least worst of them, and under huge amounts of peer pressure, which I now regret not resisting more, I finally caved in and accepted that wild card suggestion as being something to just stop you guys brainstorming to the point of complete ridiculousness.
1: Steve's got to be stronger than that. You can't give your lunch money to bullies, you have to stand up to them. And because of you, Steve, basically, all that is all your fault, I would have won. If not for you, letting these idiots get away with this, bringing a cup competition into a league format, fools, absolute
3: fools. Let's take it away for next season. I think it should be ditched. Steve, over to you. You weren't there, man. You don't know what it was like. It was just constant, incessant ping, 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 nonsense on the WhatsApp group. You weren't actually physically with them. They were just no, no, messaging you ding, on ding, your ding, ding, phone. Ding, ding, ding. That's even I've got worse. Other things to be getting on with.
0: Mm. I, I have no idea what the Wild card system was and haven't had any idea about it for the entirety of the season.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: What you don't realise, Stephen, is that you are making these protestations fairly vociferously uh, without realising, of course, that all the evidence still remains on that WhatsApp group. And we can produce all of it to prove you once again to be a massive liar. And to another couple of updates that will not make Stephen angry, I hope. Robbie Harms. You remember Robbie, our runner without headphones in the bear infested forests of North mm. Carolina? dear SPM crew says Robbie my apologies for the delay in clearing up your confusion about my encounter with a bear while running and listening to your podcast Rory you are indeed correct that the audio quality isn't great and your voices do indeed fade in and out but it still beats wearing headphones and I can't muster the money or courage to buy wireless ones he says Steve thank you for your Manchester running recommendation which you made a couple of weeks ago and Chinch These bears aren't typically aggressive or large, unlike the grizzlies out west. And I haven't yet seen an Ewok in the wild. I think they mostly live in Canada. So I can't comment on their size, but I promise to write back when I do. All the best from Robbie.
0: Even a a small bear is is still a bear.
2: Well, by definition, it is indeed. But uh, I would imagine if you live in America, you are aware of the relative sizes of bears. Yeah, but it's
0: not. Well, I I think if you're living in sort of central Philadelphia. That's a nice part of the culture. But it's, we're not, like a small bear isn't like squirrel sized, it's not like a little tiny, like tiny bear squirrel, it's still a bear. (laughs)
1: Squirrel, what
0: are you talking about? What you shouldn't do though, is don't any of you get a small child
1: to dress up as an Ewok, and when I go out for my 10 mile run around Woodford, is get an Ewok leaping out of the bushes at me, because that would, would truly, truly, it would tip me, I'm close to the edge, That would tip me over.
2: Yes, definitely don't anybody do that. Don't anybody do that in Woodford over the course of the next few days in Woodford. Um, And also the other updates from Ewan Haig, who is now caught up sufficiently to find out that we've been talking about him on set Piece menu dear rory steve hugh and andy he says glad to hear that you've been recording throughout the coronavirus shutdown i'm writing to thank you for reading the emails that i sent you when i was listening to the episodes in the 70s and 80s which you read out on sbm 183 now that i've reached the coronavirus lockdown so no new football being played episodes the 170s to 180s I'm realising that I am among the many new listeners, perhaps tens of people, he says enthusiastically, who went back to the start and began listening at SPM number one. Cheers from Ewan Hague in Chicago, who says, P.S. My older daughter, Isla, 11, says my emails are too long and that I should just email I love you guys on a regular basis.
0: You see, I bet in Chicago, Ewan's not got a clue how big bears are.
2: Well, he's also from Scotland originally, so I would imagine that that also puts him at a disadvantage. Yeah, you know, he doesn't know anything about
0: bears, Ewan.
2: We heard uh, no from, from his younger daughter, Esther, who was complaining about us recently, too. So while we have a new listener who is very dedicated, his two daughters clearly appear to be um, antipathetic.
0: They they'd probably won't be more, more impressed if you could talk to them more about bears.
3: <laughs> I think we've lost Chinch. I think we, Chinch, speak to us for a moment. Hello. Yeah. It sounds a lot more echoey, but He's you're you sort off the other room. I'm in uh, a cavernous,
1: which, I, I'm, I'm, I was, uh, I'm relatively uh, wealthy. I've got cavernous <laughs> rooms in my house, so it's totally <laughs> echoing off the walls. Uh, sorry, Steve, if that's, uh, do you want me to move into the east wing? <laughs> Or the butler's, maybe the butler's quarters, it's a bit small, it's still massive, but maybe some huge room I'm in now.
3: Maybe something with thicker tapestries,
1: Chinch. It's like a cathedral, this house, you've been here, you know how impressive it is.
2: Uh, We haven't heard from Buffalo Joe Highland in a while, so he's put that right with this email. Dear Steve, he says, another excellent pod as always, responding to last week's. Kudos to Chinch on his SPM PLPL finish, apparently a broken clock is right more than twice a day. Uh, One of the many excellent takes was the impact of five substitutes and how this would likely favour the traditional elite. However, I was wondering if the pod had seen an article in The Guardian by athletic Bill Bowles, former head of recruitment, saying that it may favour other smaller teams instead. Whilst clubs such as Chelsea and City certainly have the biggest squads, the balance in those squads mean that they may not be able to use the additional subs to their advantage. Will bringing on Mounts for Havertz or Mares for Torres prevent City or Chelsea conceding sloppy goals? Probably not. One thing such an increased amount of subs may allow, though, is managers to completely change formation and playing style mid-game. Would say a 4-3-3 to press teams early doors for a quick goal, becoming a 5-3-2 later on to allow them to protect the lead and hit on the counter. Despite having a smaller/slash weaker squad, teams—and this (laughs) this is the kicker—teams such as Arsenal, uh, Wolves, Brighton, or Sheffield United have the sort of managers who may try this. It will also allow Roy Hodgson to bring on an additional five defensive midfielders at any given point in the game.
0: So I am in, at this point in time reading a book called America's Game, by an, an author and journalist called Michael McCambridge, which is about the rise of the NFL. And two things leapt out at me about this book as I was reading it yesterday. One, so overpriced? No, uh, no. Uh, possibly, maybe, not sure. It, came, it, it was from you know the non-taxpaying giant website, <laughs> uh, the, the 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 one that that river's named after. Uh, so the first thing that leapt out at me. In the original NFL in 1920, there was a team from Decatur. In Georgia. Was, in Georgia, they were called the Decatur Staleys. don't know what Staley was. Maybe that's why they folded after a season because they had a terrible name. But they became the Chicago Bears, which is interesting because you and lives in Chicago knows nothing about bears. Mm. And the other thing that was more relevant was that, you know how in the NFL, everyone only does one job for a unionised sport, you're not Barely
3: to be, even that sometimes.
0: You're not, you're not allowed to multitask that. They've got a guy to do one type of kicking and another guy to do another type of kicking, and it's ridiculous. But that that, that was not the case originally. They used to be able to do more than one thing, these people. And it changed, it all changed. The, that kind of versatility died when they introduced the this, what he calls the second squadron kind of approach, where you basically change your offence and your defence completely. And I did wonder whether five subs might have the impact of Ending the need for players to be versatile. Well, we, we
1: see it in rugby, don't we? Where the starting 11 plays for about 60 to 80 minutes and then they, they change a lot of the players to freshen things up. The front, don't no, hang on a minute, Rory. Don't start slagging rugby off.
2: Hang on a minute. There's more than 11.
1: <laughs> more than 11, Chinch. What's that?
2: You said more than 11?
1: Oh, did I say start, starting 15? I do apologise. So, yeah, so what they do, they tend to play for an hour and then they, they make ta- the tactical stuff tends to happen then and they, they change the... T- but this is it's all planned because they know that the team is going to run out of steam probably at six or They change the um, the game plan and stick fresh people on. Are we going to see football teams do that? I presume that is the, that, that is the, uh, the obvious question with, with so many substitutes to call them.
3: I think we did see that on a couple of occasions, whether we would with games being a bit more traditionally and more evenly spread out. I'm not sure, but I definitely watched a couple of matches where you got the sense that the manager had finished with his strongest team rather than starting with it mm-hmm. and decided that because he had the ability, I think Brendan Rodgers did yeah, it, Leicester, in a, yeah, a Le- yeah. Leicester at Watford. Yeah. Uh, he clearly thought, I'm much better off having my best team on the field for the last 30 minutes than I am for the first 60 minutes. and didn't work out in the end because he finished one all. But you, that, that kind of thing might start coming into it, certainly.
2: That's
0: really interesting that you could then
3: pick times, and as football that's more
0: analytical, you could basically get pick times when you want your strongest team to be on the field. So you you might you might start a little bit weaker to have a you know greater defensive focus or whatever, and then then say right actually do you know what? we we are at our best and our opponents are at their worst between forty five and seventy, so we'll go strong then, and then maybe we'll have to kind of yeah the, the way the way the managers the managers will manage minutes, will be, will be interesting. And it might actually lead to a... It will obviously spoil the, the flow of the games to, to some extent. But I wonder whether it might make it more kind of conceptually complicated, more of a challenge, more of a mental kind of chess element to it. Not tactically, but in terms of how you manage time and resources during games. So if, you, if you're
1: starting weaker, I would start the game and then you'd bring on the big guns, Graham Lasso, Phil Neville, Steve Guppy... To really put the opposition under pressure. So I, I Mike, I wouldn't play, I'd never play 90 minutes, would I? You'd bring
2: on Joe Bryan to take the free kick.
1: <laughs> After um, he'd been told how to play and how
2: to kick the ball. Finally from Shane Thomas. Greetings SPM, if you're still continuing your manager's mo- Most Likely to series, I have some suggestions for your consideration. Manager most likely to own a nightclub on the wrong side of town and also work as a bouncer on the door of said nightclub, Diego Simeone. <laughs> Manager most likely to work at CERN and ends up kicking out all the other scientists because they don't understand his vision, Johan Cruyff. (laughs) And manager most likely to sabotage Cruyff's research because he believes that he is the real genius, Louis van Gaal. Uh, Kind regards, Shane Thomas. Uh, Correspondence of uh, any kind to gmail.com. Now, you could say football is a game of protecting traditions and respecting the status quo. You could equally say that football is a game of protecting the most moneyed and respecting self-interest. But if there was ever a time when that assumed wisdom might be challenged, it would be while facing the challenge of a global pandemic that has highlighted some of the frailties of both the game itself and those who are favoured by it. During the hiatus forced by the pandemic there was some despair, some hand-wringing and even a promise that things would definitely have to change. The sum total of the legacy teams will have five substitutions next season if the league's allowed. Is that really the extent of those lessons that we appear to be learning on a daily basis for those 100 days? Didn't we have loads of really good ideas about governance, financial stability and season structure? And we're about to embark on a traditional knockout format for the Champions League and Europa League that, while not being at all traditional for those competitions, will provide us with another unique moment one we'll all draw significant conclusions from and one that'll never be repeated regardless of how much fun it'll be. So it is time to look forward. What might have been the lessons and legacy of football's coronavirus story and will we end up ignoring them all?
3: Can I start with a positive one? Please do. I think we've seen plenty of evidence of how football can be a a force for good and that certainly should give it a little bit more rope in in wider society going forward as we hopefully gradually come further out of lockdown situation hopefully can start putting elements of the, the pandemic behind us. I think first and foremost, we saw how brilliantly elite footballers responded to the very unedifying goading about w- what they do or don't put into society by coming together, uh, coming up with a collaborative plan to to divert money to where it was most needed. in 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 a way that I think we we were all completely blown away by by how they were able to put their heads together and and come up with that and do, for what many people saw was the right thing, but certainly was not their responsibility, but they took it upon themselves. So that was the first positive thing that I think football gave us during the course of lockdown, and that should not be forgotten. And then I think subsequently the way that football has returned the way that not just the Premier League, but the, the big leagues across Europe, the infrastructure that they put in place to enable football to return—yes, albeit only really on our, our TV screens as far as an audience was concerned—but the efforts that were that that they went to to enable that to happen safely and with so few positive tests along the way, having tested those involved in within the, the bubble, those who were going into the, the red zone within, within stadiums. So few tests that you, you have to say what a tremendous job football at the elite level did to enable that to happen and, and to effectively give a pathway, you would hope, for other elements of society. And we've already seen it with other sports. To, to get back to at least performing at the elite level and offer others further down the food chain that pathway as well
0: i think there was a symbolic importance to it as well wasn't there there was a kind of sense that football did and it it sounded a bit trite when people talked about it before it came back but football football coming back did kind of symbolize a sense that that things would get back to normal or you know that that, that it, we wouldn't just sort of be in full full on lockdown forever i think that it did have that kind of that impact maybe more so in in the countries in on continental europe where there wasn't this debate about whether it was legitimate or whether you know we seem to focus a lot more on whether it was it's impossible to play morally it's wrong to play than than a lot of other countries did i think that they they made the case for the economic importance of just playing on when when possible much more convincingly whereas we we kind of got bogged down in the kind of indistinct quite intangible morality of whether it was appropriate to play but I think Steve's right there's been a there's been a kind of demonstration of football's importance to society the way that it's it's quite a good kind of it's just quite a good cipher for, for people to express attachment and emotion in a way that, they, that maybe there, there isn't another vehicle for um, so you look at especially well across Europe really there's been a, a quite a lot of kind of charitable donations and food drives and practical help that's been driven by fans And I think that's because the organised fan networks are kind of in place already, but also because it's a way for people to to kind of band together rather than just being like, well, I I want to help, but I don't really know how to do it. Fans can mobilise in a way that other groups can't.
3: They've demonstrated even though these football clubs have become huge businesses, that they are still cornerstones of the community as well. And I think there's a perception that that had been left behind. But as you've described, Rory, that has been demonstrated to not be the case. And it's the, uh, it is the kind of thing I, I don't think should be forgotten. I think we need to put this thing about comparing footballers' salaries to or footballers' wages to a nurse's salary or transfer fees compared to the cost of building a school. That kind of stuff should at least in the short term, be forgotten because football has demonstrated its worth to to the community and should be given an opportunity to continue to do so.
1: But also, it, it is going to be ongoing, isn't it? We're not suddenly going to see a, a, just a, an end to this. One day we have the pandemic, the next day we don't. This is still going to rumble on, you presume, for a good six months to a year. So again, it's going to continue good works, isn't it? I think it is right to, to, to flag up. The, the, the good news stories about what's what's happened during this pandemic as well. But it, it's something that has to continue to happen because there won't just be a, a full stop to this, I presume. It is going to rumble on for a while. So it's everyone's still thinking in the same way. And maybe the longer this goes on, the more people will will continue to think in the in the same way. And, and players will continue to try and push and, and make advancements in different areas as well. So in a horrible way, it's been good for for society to see the footballers do care and for footballers to realise that they can play a part in, in different areas of, of society.
2: So there is a positive legacy from the, the point of view of, as you've just said there, Chinch, society. Society is appreciative of football and footballers perhaps more than they might have been or wanted to be uh, prior to the, to the pandemic and the lockdown. Um, what about logistically? Because Steve, you're right. The Premier League has, after a lot of criticism and a lot of what seemed to be indecision, up until the restart, really shown how capable they are of organising something that was unique and, in the end, particularly impressive. Given that, Rory, you spoke about in your column recently about baseball's troubles, and I'm very aware of the, the issues that the NFL is having as well, Is there a sense that the legacy of the Premier League's ability to restart successfully should actually be something that is a blueprint for others to follow? Appreciate the numbers are different, the regularity of games are different, the amount of traveling is often different as well. But in principle, in terms of the testing, In terms of the reintroduction of the sport, so the way that the Premier League did it initially with just four or five players in small bubbles and then increasing that and then bringing back contact training, is that not something that can then be replicated around the world in different sports, which have waited later, been forced to wait later, or indeed are struggling and need to find a way through that?
0: I think in terms of football, definitely. Um, I don't know whether we should do the Premier League credit for that. To be fair, because I think a lot of the inspiration came from Germany. I think a lot of the, it was the Germans who were first, obviously, to come, to come back. And I think it was the Bundesliga that a lot of kind of other organisations contacted in the first place to say, right, how have you done this? Including the Premier League, I think they looked to to, to an extent the most important the most important day in terms of getting the Premier League back was was May the seventeenth when the Bundesliga started. That was that was proof that All right this can be done. Um, but I think football, in that sense has has demonstrated like you say like an ability to work together when I spoke to christian Strike a few weeks ago, he said that it was a chance for football to kind of this industry that's really that 's really heavily criticized for infighting and self interest and all that to actually show that there is still something even at the, like, the executive level there is still something a bit more to it than than people give it credit for that they are capable of working for a greater good and I think yeah they've across europe they 've done that really they 've shown they've shown that they can just about, and it took a while in England, kind of put self-interest aside and think, right, what is good for the collective? And you'd hope, I suppose, that some, some element of that will rumble on, that, you, that they will, they've seen that they can organise this in really, in really difficult circumstances, and that might give them a bit more, a bit more, I don't know, a bit more inspiration, a bit more kind of confidence to do it again in the future. Is it, is it though because they were maybe forced into working together to get this
1: done? will will that be remembered if there is an end, and hopefully there will be an end to this pandemic? Will, will that feeling remain, or will, again, slowly in time, human nature just fall back into how things were, were run before? Or will the feeling that they've got, I just wonder whether they were forced into doing this, so yes, they've done the, the right thing, pulled together, worked together to, to get football back on again. But will they remember that that actually happened and how they worked together, or will... They just, just forget and kind of fall into the same old trap as we as we had before.
2: Well, there are two things there. There's the logistics, which is what, what I just mentioned about what it, it was successful. And Roy, you're right to to draw it back to, to Bundesliga who 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 led the way. I think or all our own personal experience, certainly my personal experiences with the Premier League. So I was much more aware of of how they managed to pull it off as opposed to what, what Germany had done for a month prior, which is certainly worth paying tribute to. So that's the logistics, which is something that we can say is successful and where people did draw all their particular influences together and come out with something that works. But we're talking also about the competition element here and all those changes that we thought might come about as a result of that working together that could provide us with a legacy, could show us how it can be done as one, as with a togetherness, which is not something that we're used to seeing or indeed ever thought we would do. Those are the things, are they not, that we're not going to see. It seems like any kind of, Infighting that was inherent in football prior to it, and meant for all the issues that we had during the lockdown and getting to some sort of resolution. All that infighting, all that self-interest—it's—it's it's not going to be diluted. It's not going to be pushed to one side. It's all just going to come roaring back as soon as the circumstances allow. Do
0: you not know, think the bigger issue is that that they they were given, in circumstances they didn't want the chance to actually rethink quite a lot of of issues that have been have been front and center for football. For, for years, I mean, the main one being obviously fixed fix congestion, things like the, how you schedule the, the the Qatar World Cup, the issue that you are always have in 2024 that the the international calendar needs redrawing, which means everyone has to kind of scrap for for kind of their little their little piece of it, and it, that's things like
2: exactly exactly playing
0: playing Champions League on on a, they want to play the want the Champions League on the weekend, but the domestic leagues don't want it. Things like the the. Blackout, I guess, comes into that kind of that kind of rethinking of it. it. Although this wasn't an opportunity that anybody wanted or anybody would have liked to have had. When it came about, because of the spirit of cooperation that you ended up with, driven to an extent by UEFA and FIFA, football did actually have, for a few weeks, have, have this chance to say, look, we could do something completely different. And I think the one thing that, that you've seen, really, in the way that it's come back, is to an extent a lack of imagination. That, that, and it's, it's, that's easy to say from the outside when, when you're not trying to herd the cats and come up with the ideas. But you kind of think, well, could they not have, could they not have used this as a chance to say, actually, we could do some, something really different here. We could think outside the box and solve a lot of problems we've had for a long time because of this short this sort of term impact of the, of the virus.
2: But that is to assume that football is inherently broken in those areas which you list, which you may well think that they are. But the problem is, is that those people who have the power to change it might not think it is inherently broken. And even if they do admit that it is inherently broken to themselves, they're never going to admit it publicly because they benefit from yeah. those problems that football creates. So this is, this is the point that I'm trying to make. There is no, there does not seem to be any way through to what you have just described, Rory, being some sort of utopia from us outside the game who don't benefit financially, particularly uh, from, en- from any decision making that is made from on high. So we find ourselves in that position of hoping that something will happen, but understanding quite why it won't.
3: I agree with Rory that I was surprised there wasn't more imagination. And I think we talked about this during the episodes when we were looking at the impacts that the pandemic might have on football, that we couldn't quite understand why lines were being drawn in terms of absolutes of when seasons had to end or when the next season had to start. But I can see it from the other side now because of the, the huge stock and the leeway that was given to football to, to resume, to get going again, to, to plot a course through to the end of the season, that perhaps it was too much to ask with everything that was at stake, that they would also be able to think outside the box because they had, had to be so precise in terms of, of getting games played, having them televised, allowing fans to at least be able to experience the games that way if they couldn't come to stadiums, that to then also be trying to to plot a course beyond that was perhaps too much for us to ask of the Mm. governing bodies. That isn't to say that they shouldn't now be thinking in those terms for the future or in case we end up in a similar situation again. Although, having said that, football has demonstrated its ability to be potentially if there was to be another lockdown wider spread than the one those of us in the northwest are, are currently experiencing that, that football has probably done enough to to demonstrate that it would be capable of of resisting that surviving. A further widespread lockdown and it might still be able to continue having established how successful it can operate within a bubble.
2: I started by saying you could say that football is a game of protecting traditions and respecting the status quo. Are those who having seen what has happened and are against any sort of reasoning that suggests things could change for the better, those who steadfastly Mm stick to the idea that that wouldn't necessarily be a good thing for the game because it is wholly different to what the game has been up until now. Do we understand that argument? Is there a status quo that can be aligned with tradition in the way that it is something worth fighting to sustain?
0: I think people, people generally don't like change. And I think Steve, Steve's, Steve's totally right that, that in hindsight, it would have been probably suicidal to some extent for, for football to try and institute massive changes. Just as no one was doing anything for three months, it was enough work to get to get things back and get things finished. My disappointment is the same as his that they've not that we're not we're not now saying seeing people say right. Well, while we were getting the games back on, we actually thought this is quite a good idea, so we could just do this again. It, it all seems to be kind of get back to normal, get back to normal, rather than reflecting the fact that the world might have changed and that this is a chance for football to change with it. I think I think that it's partly self-interest that it works for the clubs and it works for the leads and it works that, that weird power balance that you have in football where everyone's permanently unhappy is actually quite an impressive achievement because no one actually pulls out. No one's, everyone's quite unhappy, but no one's so unhappy that they just go sod it. We're going to go and do something else. That's actually quite impressive given how many competing interests there are. Um, it's part, but I think it's partly just the idea that there's, each organisation, each kind of power base has its own kind of ideas of what is, what is acceptable and what is traditional and what is, what is right and what is wrong. And no one's really able to, to break free of that. And I think the best example of that would start of the Champions League and, the, and the, Europa, the Europa League as we record and, and the Champions League this week is back. And I think it's odd that UEFA haven't thought to say we're going to wait to see how this kind of end of season Champions League tournament goes. Because if it's a massive success, we could actually have a real money spinner on our hands for UEFA, for the leagues. Because you could then, in the same way as it would be a great honour to host, it's a great honour to host the World Cup or to host the Champions League final. What about a two week Champions League final tournament? That would, be, that would be incredible, surely. And I think it's odd that they've said already, we will not do this again. When it might turn out that, that A, not only is it a more suitable solution in a kind of coronavirus world, however long that goes on for, but also, it might, it might just be better than what we went before.
2: Would, would it be more lucrative, just to, to clear that point up? Because there are fewer games, so therefore fewer... Opportunities I think it, be it, might be
0: more, it might be more lucrative for, you, for UEFA because, because of the hosting situation rather than it being kind of... UEFA don't accrue any benefits for the, for the, quarter, the last six days in the quarterfinals and the, the semifinals because they're kind of, apart from the TV rights, because they're obviously held in different countries. But if you put if you package the last eight all together and say, right, we're gonna, we're gonna give that to X place, then it might well be that you, um, you you have kind of you can sell the rights to host it, but also and more, you get of more you'd get more, you'd
3: get more eyes on it as well, Rory, yeah. potentially. Yes, you, you know, we're used to the from the last 16 onwards, those ties being played across two legs, but if it was a one match shootout drawing. Vast global audiences being played at a time when maybe there weren't too many other distractions, then eyes on screens would help drive that. And also, if, if you could play, if you could play them on Saturdays,
0: you could play the quarter over a week. You could certainly play the quarterfinals on a, and the final on a Saturday, the semis, semis on a Wednesday and Thursday, which never does the World Cup any harm. So you could you could maximize it. Yeah, there's obviously you losing game, but I do wonder if you could if you could offset that somehow in terms of viewing numbers.
3: But I think the I know I've banged on about this before, but I think the EFL Cup offers us a domestic example of how difficult it is to, to, to break the status quo and, and how intertwine, intertwined the stakeholders are. That we've got a situation where, as things stand in England, the season will be starting, what, five weeks later than usual, finishing almost bang on schedule in May. Yet we are still, one way or another, going to have the EFL Cup next season a secondary cup competition that none of the other big Western European leagues have, we will be continuing with because we're not even able to have a, a sensible, grown-up conversation about not just about the suitability of that going forward in the longer term, but the suitability of it next season. Surely we could say, look, guys, let's all just be mature about this. i say a really, really easy, fixed solution is to get rid of that, remove that from the congestion of the fixtures for next season so that we can give ourselves a little bit of wiggle room. We can't even do that. So, restructuring the Champions League is a much bigger deal. And there's more people involved.
0: Or even just saying that the the teams in Europe don't don't have to play in the EFL Cup or they can play their their under 23, which is what's going to happen. Yeah. Well, how about taking the Premier League teams out of the EFL Cup
1: and just saying the Premier League don't, don't compete for
0: it? But that's not really, well, the, the the broader issue domestically is that I don't quite understand what's going to happen with League 1 and League 2, because they said three months ago that they, they could not play financially, it wasn't financially viable for them to play without fans, so they mm-hmm. couldn't end the season. Now they don't have to start a new season without fans, and they, they, there is no, there is no kind of, I know the Germans are talking about maybe getting them back in in September, but we, we are behind Germany in many ways, um, and <laughs> the... There's, so how long is that going to last for? So do, do do the EFL clubs need those extra games? It's just going to cost everybody money at the, at the current rate.
2: So if we've talked about the societal elements of of how football and footballers are are perceived, we've talked about the competitive element and how there was an opportunity there for perhaps wide ranging uh, changes. That have, it's an opportunity that hasn't yet appeared to have been taken. What about that element that you've just brought up, Rory, the financial element of it? So many conversations throughout the course of the lockdown about how vital, as you say, fans were to lower league clubs and how it's completely unsustainable to not have them. And also how, and there was a recent government report, wasn't there, the Select Committee, the Departure of Culture, Media and Sports Select Committee, um, who talked about the fact that parachute payments have to end because they are something that is not helpful to um, league clubs below at the Premier League. So are there any financial lessons? What is the financial legacy of the pandemic that will lead us to make decisions for the better of football to try and sustain what is, apart from the EFL Cup, Stephen, it doesn't take a pandemic for you to hate the EFL Cup. But whoa,
3: whoa, whoa. We, don't, you're misrepresenting me again, Hugh. We, we all agree to a certain
2: ex- We all agree to a certain extent about the, the very desperate need for something to be resolved in that element of the footballing calendar. But what, what about the, the, the financial element? How, how seriously do we take what we could have learned from this to help football financially go forward?
3: Chinch, do you want to say anything?
1: You've not, not really.
0: You just.
2: You, no, you, I'm enjoying just, listening because
1: I'm 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 very tired, and also I'm just enjoying listening. <laughs> because you clearly know what you're talking about. I haven't I haven't the foggiest. So, it, Chinch, you, you crack on.
3: Would you get Would you get more sleep if we got rid of the football league playoff system? <laughs>
1: um, Is that something you'd like? I'd get more sleep if you going. talked a bit more about the EFL Cup, because that would definitely
3: send me off. <laughs> You know, again, it's about it's something that we're already aware of, but this has just shone a brighter light on it. It's about making sure the money filters down, doesn't it? You know, that the, the Premier League has had its opportunity to resume. Yes, Premier League clubs have lost vast swathes of money, but there's a much greater impact further down the pyramid in terms of what it's it's costing clubs at one relatively close to home as far as we're concerned Wigan it's had a huge impact on them the pandemic and and obviously mismanagement of the the club as well so a lesson from that is one that we already know but needs to be learned quickly is that if those League One and League Two clubs are going to struggle playing behind closed doors and we, we very very badly needs to review both the way that they are financed, and again, this is something we talked about during pandemic episodes, in terms of their their desperate need or desire to try and keep up, that, that almost like a business model is set at the very top by the Premier League, and that seems to be, needs to be replicated further down the pyramid, albeit with smaller finances, is that rather than what happens to the money from the top or, or just happens with the money from the top filtering down, d- do the teams in the third and fourth tier also need to, to rethink and restructure the way they go about doing their business?
0: Well, I think is, the, the issue is the the um, Chinch is actually falling asleep. No, 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 I'm the, fine, um, I'm fine, the, fine. But like we saw last, so we're recording the, the day after the playoff final, which is now up to what 170 million quid it's meant to be worth, and there's, during Chinch's excellent co-commentary, mm. you know, a, a lot of the... Oh, he's, focus- perked up, he's perked up, he's all right now. He's,
2: he left it all out on the field last <laughs> night.
0: A lot, of, a lot of the focus is on how much this game's worth, and, you know, how valuable it is, and it, isn't it fantastic? And you think, well, actually, that's kind of the problem in English football, is that that game is worth so much money. That's not healthy. That There's that, that bigger gap between what you get for being in the Premier League and what you get for being in the Championship. And to an extent, the, ch- the same applies between the Championship and League One. That, you know The average budget for a Championship team's 10, 15, 20 times higher than it is for a League One team. There's a massive financial chasm uh, on those two steps of the pyramid. And that, that's not healthy. And I think that what we probably have, what we should have seen from the pandemic is that the trickle down economics of football are a lie. And that the, all this money at the top, is just money at the top. You know, even when the Premier League came out and said they were gonna give money to the EFL, they weren't giving money to the EFL, they were advancing them alone that they won't now get in January. And you sort of think, well, look, this isn't, this is not a healthy model for us to follow, but that has to change. And I thought Rick Parry spoke quite well about it in front of the select committee in the, when he said that the parachute payments have now become an evil. And I think his, his, his belief is that there has to be sort of fundamental systemic change in the way that football's finances work, what that idea is, I don't know. How you do that, I don't know. But we, 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 we have seen that very clearly through the, the last four or five months and nothing has been done about it. And there, there has been no kind of movement to say that we saw that this needs to change, so let's change it. It's, it's all been, understandably to some extent, focused on getting getting the game back up and running. But now you have the fact, yeah, that League 1 and League 2 are going to resume without fans. And you think, well, this is costing you money. This is that is not a good idea for that to happen.
2: The counter argument to a lot of what we've been saying is, as you said, Rory, change for change's sake you're just looking for something different because you want to spice up your life you want to change it you want to see what happens but the, those who are, the, the games stakeholders have a stake in it and they don't want to see that stake ruined or diminished so you can understand them hanging on to something because they are fearful of what it might look like that stake mm. after those changes are made but there is one part of what happened during the pandemic that is not changed for change's sake and that is the financial uh, aspect to it that those are the elements that should have at least been Put front and centre of some sort of document that illustrates lessons of the coronavirus pandemic and its effect on football. And I know the select committee uh, att- attempted to do that to some degree, but it is not their job they can advise, and, they're, and they're, obviously they're not supposed to get involved, strictly speaking, in the governance of the game but it is at least within their purview to say, look, how about this? And will, will that have an effect? Will that be the kind of thing that football responds to and says, right, well, okay, that's probably quite serious. Then we should do something about it. And the other thing, I mean, we, we started this conversation talking about five subs. Are there any, any elements of the game in terms of just it, the, the minor practicalities that might be a legacy of what's happened? And it's, and it's not just uh, five subs. Um, Chinch, what about the drinks breaks because I know that they were an example of something that happened because of the time of year that the, uh, the, the football returned. But Mikel Arteta won the FA Cup for Arsenal because of tactical changes he made during the drinks break, which are not drinks breaks, they are coaching breaks. And for those yeah. who use yeah. them as coaching breaks, they should be applauded for taking that opportunity to change things around. And that's exactly what Mikel Arteta did against Chelsea in the FA Cup final. It was that moment in which if you could distill it down to any, that Arsenal won the FA Cup. So clearly there are opportunities for those progressive, thoughtful and sensible, intelligent managers to be able to use these as a genuine influence on the game. So does that mean that they might be something that football decides is worth keeping as a legacy of the coronavirus lockdown and restart?
1: No, but the, the, the clever coaches have used the drinks break. It's not about having drinks. I mentioned it last night. Thomas Frank has used a, a tactics board uh, during a drinks break in a Brentford game against Charlton. They were 1-0 down, got the tactics board out, and they, they turned the game around with what he did on the tactics board in the, in the final 10 minutes of the game. So that's all the coaches are using it for the players now. It was brought in presumably because of the players' fitness, and again, the heat because of the, the time of year that we were playing. I can understand why drinks breaks were there for maybe two or three weeks. We absolutely don't need them now, and we certainly don't need them at the start of, of next season. If but what I mean do, is, actually intre- what it's becoming, our tactical breaks. Exactly. So, so the game is then four quarters. Let's introduce is, that then. Why? Why on earth would we? Because why on earth would we need to do that?
2: It's bringing us moments in games which are of interest, change the course of the game, give an opportunity to the coach to affect a game it more more regularly, and that's more interesting, isn't it? That is that not something worth? introducing into football to have that that relationship that bond stronger between coach team and the effects of what he is coaching his team to do
1: well again we're going back to tradition do we have two 45 minutes do we have three substitutions and and stick with what we've always had i i just i just don't think breaking the game into into in essence four quarters giving coaches the opportunity halfway through each half to to tactically talk to their players I, i just feel that is unnecessary it's only come in because of the drinks break it wasn't brought in for a tactical break. Let, let's see whether this will actually improve the game. It's just something the coaches have used because of the drinks break. We've got the five substitutes as well. So if you were to break the game into four quarters and have five substitutes, I, I'm, I, yeah, I'm a, traditionalist, a traditionalist in some ways, but I just think really now it, it, it's changing the game, I feel, far too much. And it's fragmenting the game far too much and of course you're saying yes then it's up to coaches to really work on the hoof in terms of their substitutions in terms of their tactics they've got 20 minutes of the game and then they can say something another 20 minutes then they've got half time same in the second half I, i'm not i'm not sure whether the viewers again stopping the game so much is really what the viewers want i like the I think 45 minutes at times building that's too long i don't think it is too long but if you're paying for basically 22 minutes. Um, sections of, of a game and five substitutes. I think it's, it's really diluting the game too much.
2: I tell you who would think it was a good idea, the broadcasters, because they can sell advertising space for that gap. One minute's gap. You can have an envision box in box, if you like, uh, television advertising, and that is exactly the way that American you can broadcasters make, you can deal make good, it.
1: Absolutely. You can make Ain't good funny. use of it. But the reasons it were brought in the first place was a drinks break. And now you're saying, well, we'll use it as a tactical break. We'll now use it as an advertising break. It was brought in as a drinks break. So if you say right, we're taking the drinks break out of it, everything else kind of falls down.
3: That that is the concern, though, that it it becomes something else entirely, doesn't it? It it, it becomes a f- almost unofficially a four-quarter contest. If you start saying right, we are having a timed, minute-long break so that broadcasters can sell advertising space, which will almost certainly, if if allowed, go to a betting company, and that furthers elements of artifice coming in that we have seen during the course of, of lockdown football, which I, I don't feel would be good for the game if they were retained in the longer term. And I'll get on to crowd noise on the back of that in a minute. But I think the flip side to what Hugh was talking about, about us applauding those coaches who use the drinks break to tactically change things that completely transform the flow of the game. I think, as, as, although those are examples of why it might be a positive alteration is that I've seen lots of games as well, where the match was just building up ahead of steam. All of a sudden you have a 60 second break and the second quarter of that half, becomes it complete non-event, because everything that had been building to in the first 22 and a half minutes evaporates just because, oh, the ball's gone out for a throw-in and this seems as good a time as any to take a break, everybody. And that, that has, I think we'll see more examples of that than we will of coaches coming up with something brilliant to transform the, the flow of a match during those 60 seconds.
2: But it might have changed because of something that the coach said to his team, changing it tactically to allow that to happen rather than it being just a natural ebb and flow. What
3: both coaches have said to their players, look, this is getting a little bit too interesting for the people watching at home, lads. Can we all just take a step back? Don't be too, com- don't be too competitive. A few loose passes. Knock the ball out of play a little bit more often. The last thing anybody wants before half-time is a goal. Yes. But the th- thing is, <laughs> you've got drinks breaks. You've got five subs- they-, they were brought in because
1: of what we'd been through. And of course, maybe there's certain things that come along that you say, actually, yes, that- that's a-, a good way of doing the-, the-, the Champions League, playing it all in one play. There's many things that you should look at but I don't feel that the drinks break, these tactical breaks now, and five subs are something we should keep. They only came in because of the circumstances of, of of the players' fitness. That's basically why it was brought in. Why would we keep them when the players don't don't need them anymore? Basically,
0: there's, there's also the presentation of the game, isn't there? So, Steve, Steve, I will leave crowd noise to you. But it's interesting that the Premier League have decided they're not. They don't seem to want to sell quite as many fixtures to be broadcast next season. They don't want this kind of endless football. It's sort of Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday night (laughs) chinch. Just constant chinch. Oh, that
1: that is, <laughs> that's, 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 that's an idea of hell, isn't it? It really
0: they, is. They've they correctly noticed the country is not ready for that <laughs> they, Oh, no, 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 but, no. For
2: maximum change. But the, the NFL are considering doing something at some point in the future where they are very strictly Thursday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. And, and I appreciate that that's four out of seven days already, but they are thinking about trying to maximise that audience by going every single day, or at least just in the very early stages of thinking about it. So it is, it is a consideration for many sports in many media environments to try and maximise that. But they would, you're right, take a lesson from the Premier League and realising that the oversaturation, whether it's chinch or no chinch, is not mm. necessarily the best idea.
0: Mm. I mean, it's a little bit different with the NFL because, because the season is so short that there is quite a lot that kind of rides on on every game. I think with the pre- the, the problem the Premier League has, and this sounds really insulting, but there was one Monday night, sort of midway through, and the game was Palace Burnley, and I remember looking at it thinking, I'm, you know, I've missed football. I wanted football to come back. I want- but I've not I, missed it this much. I'm I Not like this. I, w- I would quite regularly watch like a random German game or a random Italian game if I had, if I had the chance, which is, is rarer than it ought to be. I'm not watching Palace Burnley, not a chance. I, you'll watch Palace Burnley if you're a Palace fan or you're a Burnley fan. That's not a criticism of either, either club, but they were both mid-table. There was nothing riding on it. There was, I think, well, Burnley, and Burnley would have been about ninth or something in Palace probably 14, 13, 14. And I think what the Premier League have probably noticed is that There's quite a lot of games that don't really need to be on TV. And the problem you've got is that if they're being played in empty stadiums, but they're not broadcast, there is a point at which you think, well, like literally what is the point in this exercise? Like this is an entertainment business and it's being run to entertain nobody. That doesn't really make any sense. But I think that there was a lot of sort of suspicion that we'd come out of it with kind of games you know, the, the death of like Saturday 3 o'clock completely, games continually kind of played over weekend, like five, five six slots over weekends. It would be, conti- you know, endless, endless football on TV. It looks to me like that's not going to happen because the Premier League have, have worked out and I suspect the other leagues would have would have had the same thought that maybe it's better if, if, if not all the games are broadcasted. It, it, it means that the, the product, I guess, retains a sense of, of mystery and a sense of occasion for the games that are broadcast. Um, and the other thing is, is, is a very kind of inside baseball media thing but I'm, I'm really interested to see whether press conferences happen again mm. in person because I, I don't know if they will I don't know whether the, club, the clubs might well have decided that everything's actually a lot easier if you just let journalists tune into a Zoom call rather than actually having to put, you know, put up with them in your, in your training round and it's the same with, with the number of journalists who cover games and I don't know whether that will you know, we've been out to 25 in Britain, and I think it's been 22 in Italy and 10 in Spain and 10 in Germany. Um, the Champions League is 25. And you kind of think, well, obviously, if there's a vaccine or whatever, then it will go up. But I don't know if you'll ever get back to the numbers that you had before where you get 200, 250 journalists at a game. I think the clubs will look at it and think, we don't need to let that many in.
3: Well, they'll they'll look at the at people's ability to to do the job remotely to still be able to deliver the same service without physically being in the ground. And I and I don't think the clubs would necessarily be be wrong about that, to be honest. Especially if you've got multiple representatives from from one organisation, just to pick up immediately on the back of the, sort of some of the technical behind the scenes stuff that Rory was talking about there. One thing that I think actually worked really well. I'm not sure whether this has come across on the television at all, but by having the post-match and pre-match interviews with with managers or players against the backboard and the interviewer stood a couple of metres away, I think having done it a few times, you have got a much better interview with that person than having them pinned up against a wall in a broom cup covered mm. in the bowels of a stadium where they're immediately on the back foot. I, I think i, I had a much more open engagement with managers after games during lockdown because I haven't been right up in their face. And you've been able to chat a little bit more like you would do if you met a friend in the street, you you know, you wouldn't, push that person right up against the wall and breathe heavily in their face and demand an answer to the question about how they've done over the since you last saw them you'd, you'd stand back wouldn't you you'd you'd engage in a much more humane way and it, where's it, the nearest where boots yeah. where's <laughs> the nearest boom? tell me i haven't seen you for a fortnight what have you been doing it, so <laughs> so i think that kind that that's one thing and so you know and it, it it builds on what rory was just talking about you know zoom press conferences and, and such like you know you might not necessarily have to be in, in the room. I'm, and going back to something that Rory was just talking about in terms of like the scheduling of Premier League games, I am a little bit surprised that they've said, right, we're definitely going back to normal at the start of the season because we just simply don't know yet mm. how many people and when are going to be allowed back into stadiums. And one of the primary reasons for having the games spread out across the sh- schedule was so that they could be televised so that people who would have otherwise been at that games had an ability to watch them. Um, I'm surprised that they've not tried to come up with something in the middle not quite spread out as much but uh, having a a few more games on the television because that seems to have worked quite well and it will be interesting to see whether there's any future for free to air Premier Um, League football which I think has been a huge success
0: I do I do wonder whether I I suspect they'll, they'll air more games than they would they would otherwise partly to try and claw back some of the um some of the money they lost. The one thing that I'm... This might, again, be a little bit too technical. I'm really surprised that no one... I've not heard anything about any club trying to sell some sort of digital season ticket. That, that surely is the obvious way. If you're not going to have fans in, in stadiums again until, say, December, you're going to have potentially, what, six, six home games, maybe? Six, seven home games that you can't sell tickets for. The, the EFL already has the iFollow technology, so you, you can buy a, a, a season ticket to watch your team's home games. I'm really surprised that clubs haven't thought, well, until fans come back into stadiums, we are going to sell digital. Certain games will be broadcast as they ordinarily would be, but we're going to sell digital season tickets.
3: Would that be in a club's gift in the Premier League to be able I, to do that? I don't it's think Probably not.
2: I think if you think, think about those who have the technological uh, and the fan base, the technological capability and the fan base to be interested in it, but MUTV aren't allowed to show anything until midnight of the game, Manchester City have a a similar premium service that only allows people to watch it at midnight on the day of the game. So I think it is a rights issue that stops clubs from doing that at the moment. So it would have to be a broadcaster-led.
3: Yeah, yeah. right. Okay, okay. solution. Yeah. But th- 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 it feels like there would be a, a possible solution in the if, say, for example, you were a season ticket holder for a, gl- a club, but until you were allowed in to watch the games in person, that there must be some way yeah. in which you could have a code that you could input and watch that game if it was being shown on Sky or, or BT or, or Amazon, if Amazon decides to put them back behind the paywall, if they still had games of <laughs> next season like that. So,
0: uh, it's obviously different abroad, because mm. far more games have always been broadcast abroad. But there is, I think there is probably a fairly easy way that that could be done in Britain through Now TV, where you yeah, can exactly, enter a code. So it, it may well be and I do and I they do did wonder that. they
2: did that too. Yeah. They they did do that.
0: But I, I do wonder whether the, maybe what the clubs are thinking is if we go back to normal and Sky and BT in Britain take their their TV picks for each round of games and we're not at home in that game or we're not being broadcast in that game, maybe we can sell we can we can for the price of a seat, you know, the price of a ticket, we will send a code out on them, not the price of a ticket, but you know, for a tenner or whatever at a time. We will send a code we will be able to send the code out to two season ticket holders or whatever who can then have a code to watch it on TV without having to buy you know an now TV subscription now it, might, it, might, it might be that they 've looked into that and, and it 's not worked, but I am surprised that there hasn 't been any movement on on how to effectively sell digital season tickets on the grounds that it may well be some time before fans are backing around
2: round. they 'd have to essentially restructure the entire way that rights are bought and sold by the Premier League because obviously they are done as we know, collectively, as opposed to just individually for clubs. Now, if they were to open up the opportunity for a secondary rights tier, if you like, where clubs can buy their own games to be then broadcast live via their own digital streaming platforms, that will be something that uh, might work in the, in the environment that you've just described, Rory. However, it is not the way that they are currently sold, so they, they'd have to completely change the whole bidding process. Uh, before soccer story, uh, Stephen, you wanted to finish on crowd noise.
3: Oh, yeah. The, uh, the, another lesson I think we've learned from the final few weeks of the season is again, something that may have been just under the surface that we weren't as aware of as we might've been. But the way that, that fans engage with games on TV, the artifice of, of the crowd noise, I'm surprised how popular it was, but it clearly was a, a thing that all of the broadcasters decided to go with as their default setting. They clearly did their market research. Again, learned from the experience of the the Bundesliga when it came back uh, without that option initially. That the eeriness of the stadium when you were watching on television was was something that people just weren't entirely comfortable with. For me, I enjoyed it. I've said it before. I like being able to to hear some of the instructions being shouted from the the touch line. I I found it quite engaging and in keeping with the environment in which football was being played. But I think we have learned from that experience that people aren't as engaged in a match when it's on TV as much as we thought that they might be. And that the crowd noise has helped retain a a degree of engagement that otherwise wouldn't be there. And there are clearly lessons to be learned further down the road about how that sort of thing will be used to, to give armchair spectators that immersive feeling that they weren't getting from behind closed doors. And, and it will be interesting to see whether it's it's added, you know, say when you got 20% of the crowd back in, are we still going to have crowd noise on top of that to supplement it? Because it will still sound a little bit unusual. And even when stadiums are full if there isn't a great atmosphere in the stadium, will we still have a drip feed of sort of general noise to help enhance it in some way? Remains to be seen, but we, we've definitely learned a little bit about how people engage with football by, with the popularity of the, the crowd noise option.
2: It is the emotional soundtrack in the same way that music is to movies. Something happen in a movie and you'll be told sometimes if it's a little bit on the nose, that soundtrack, you'll be told how to feel about the action that is taking place. And that's what a crowd does. It tells you how to feel about the action that is taking place, essentially in an, ev- an emotional vacuum. And one of the best things about not having the crowd noise on, it means that you can get peak chinch because yeah, you true. are not you are not distracted by any of the hubbub you just get chinch reverberating for example around Wembley as I'm sure yeah he was shouting as loudly as any of the people on the sideline at Wembley yeah
1: and you can hear Sean uh, Sean Deitch screaming at uh, Matt Lowton to keep the effing ball it's very Mm. important we hear coaches coming out with this very very important tactical information for the
2: players Mm. I actually think there's a benefit and I'm banging on about the drinks break being a coaching break. But you you learn so much more from me, the layman, watching that and being able to at least see how the changes are being made seeing the conversations that are happening and indeed sometimes hear the instructions being laid out to the to the players I've rather enjoyed that and that is something we
1: we'll just stop happy. the game every five minutes and have a bit of tactics going on just so you enjoy it the rest of the country will hate it but as long as you're happy let's do it well, it's I'll be time hap- for
0: tactics for you <laughs> yes <laughs> tactics,
1: <for> you. Yes, <laughs> tactics <laughs> time well, it's I'll a red button option. option
2: as long as <laughs> I, I will enjoy it as long as it's delivered to me by Andy Hinchcliffe it is time mm. for Nevermind Dakinori what a shock soccer story <laughs> it's time for Nevermind what a shocking <laughs> story <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh, it's a shame you, you'll cut that out. No, I'll keep it in. This is when Andy Hinchstiff <laughs> te- tells his tale from his playing or broadcasting days with all that up behaviour and I will the details from me. Since you had no sleep last mm. night because you got back late from Wembley, I was on the radio this morning, very earlier. So we both suffered from sleep deprivation today.
1: Uh, yes, and it is a little story about the, the championship playoff final. Um, so far, I've not heard of anyone who's been ejected from a ground uh, for not following all the, the guidelines or the hand washing and the wearing of the mask. Well, this was, I, I, as, as usual, I got to Wembley. Uh, the game was quarter to eight. I got to Wembley nice and early, the professional thing. I was there at half past one. Uh, no, no, it's, it's, this, is, this is how you should behave. So again, I, I go Did through... Did you know it was to, an
3: evening kickoff, Jinch? I,
1: I, I thought That's... it was five o'clock. But anyway, no, no, I, I got there. So you go through the medical screening at Wembley, then you go through the skies medical screening. But they're, they're very hot at all the ground, certainly at Wembley, about wearing masks. Mm. And I, as you you all know and everybody around the world knows, I have facial hair to cover up my, my, my hideous face. And wearing a mask, it, it does definitely make it worse because of the heat and the scratchiness. It's absolutely horrible. Now, I didn't do this intentionally, but I was sat in the stands because we're allowed to sit in kind of the, fir- the, the lower tier at Wembley. That's all kind of part of this amber zone. So we can sit there. So I'm sat there watching a bit of Friday night dinner, waiting for Scott Minto and Johnny Oaks to arrive, my, my colleagues, my Sky colleagues. So eventually they arrive and we're all socially distanced. So we're all you know, over two meters apart, chatting away. And there's a, quite a, a burly chap. He was fat, uh, who was obviously working for Wembley. And he, he shouts up to me and I, I, I didn't do it intentionally. I, I dropped my mask down so I could talk to my colleagues. And the guy shouts up to me, Oi! I think he knew who I was. He knew I was pretty famous. Because I was satisfied. <laughs> no, oi, Minto, so you, yeah.
0: Rob, Rob Green.
1: Yes, oi, Dowie, <laughs> I just put your mask on. You know? I said, sorry, 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 sorry. So I put my mask on. Again, 10, 15 minutes go by. And then I hear another booming voice. Oi, I've told you before. Put your mask on when you're sat in the... St- oh, so I've done the same thing again. It's just, again, not intentionally. So I put my mask back up again. So he's, he's shouted at me twice. Then my phone goes off and it's a text from the, the production manager at Sky. I'm not going to say her real name. We'll call her Bathsheba. So Bathsheba <laughs> texts me and it, it says uh, we've had a complaint uh, from Wembley. Uh, that um, you, you've not been wearing your mask as everybody else was. And absolutely bang to right, bang to right. but clearly, they were that unhappy with the way I was, my beaverish behavior, they'd complained to Scott. Imagine if I'd have been ejected from the ground and I have to ring up the producer of the show and say, I won't call him his real name, I'll, I'll say uh, Tomash. So I, I ring Tomash up and say, might have a slight problem here. Would it be a problem if I were to co-commentate on the championship playoff final, one of the biggest games, one of the most lucrative games in world football from the Wembley car park? Because <laughs> this big chap has complained and had me turfed out and he was well within his rights. You know, if he's seen me do it twice, if i had done it again, third strike and literally, you are out. I could have been ejected. Imagine the, imagine the blowback. My, that reputation, hilarious. my reputation is, is, is stellar this would have been, you know, I, I would have been ridiculed like Paul Scholes for having a party. It would have been absolutely appalling if I'd have got ejected. But this guy, I'm sure I walked past him a bit later on as I was making way to the gantry and he got to go up in a lift. And I walked past him and he kind of made a point. No one says hello to me. Why would they? And he kind of went, hiya. I went, hello. And I think he thought I'm the one that nearly got you chucked out of the ground. But I, I didn't play his game. I pulled my mask even further up over my face. I, I, I said, I'm... I, I said an expletive, but it was behind the mask, so he couldn't hear me. But he, he wanted me to engage with him and maybe we'd have a bit of an argument. But I'm, bigger than that. but I'm sure he had it in for me to try and get me chucked out of the stadium. But it would, again, it would have been my fault because my mask kept slipping. But then again, I do have a big nose and a large chin.
0: What Chinch doesn't know, of course, is that now employed as a steward at Wembley Stadium is Paul Jewell. <laughs> no, this was, this was, if
1: it was, it was several Paul Jewell. <laughs>
2: Keep your correspondence coming to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Please subscribe, share, rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for Thank us so. in your podcast schedule. Thank you to Stephen, and Andy and Rory. And to you all for listening, we'll be back with another setpiece menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed.
0: That, that seems a little bit jobs worthy to me, if I'm yeah. honest. Well, we were,
2: we
1: were thinking, and that's the, the, natural, the natural way of it when, when people behave. But no, he was presumably he's got maybe people watching him. So if he doesn't, but it, he, he only seemed to pick on me and there were other people whose masks were slipping and they were having conversations. And thought, so it wasn't just me, but he seemed, to, he seemed to have got it in for me. But also what I didn't understand, I got there that early, that I was genuinely sat on my own. Mm-hmm. There must have been 100 meters of space around me. I was eating my mozzarella and sun-dried tomato pasta on my own, but also there, there was points in it where I was sat there and not eating. And a guy walked past me down kind of the, 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 the gangway, the aisle, and he, he turned to me, obviously working for Wembley, and said, if you sat there, can you put your mask on? Do you have to actually wear a mask if nobody else is anywhere
0: near you in the open air? Well, I mean, logically, no. But in terms of the protocol, yes, they're they are really they're really hot on it. And the, mm. I, I can't remember where it was at Leeds, when I saw you at Leeds, Chinch. Yes. There was a guy there who was very... It, it varies from club to club, so I found that some, they kind of understood that after a while you might just want to kind of... Move, you, you, I don't know, like take your mask, your mask down to have a cup of coffee or to... Mm let your face breathe a little bit like they, they kind of understood that you might take it down for a second or two just to kind of rearrange it but it leads as soon as as soon as your hand went anywhere near your face no don't do that and it's just it's just a nervousness and you know as a man who likes to scratch his face to ribbons that was that was hard for me but mm. it's, they're just they're just nervous so it is it's he's probably he's right but yes yeah report, reporting you I think is a little bit a little bit
1: far. I, I was uh, Bathsheba was a little bit surprised as well but again, yeah. what can you do and everyone was saying oh you've got to you know shop him and, and tell him how to no he's not but he's doing his job so I just thought again being the bigger person well he, he was the bigger person because he was massive <laughs> but I was being the bigger person and and just just let it just let it just let it ride
2: Bathsheba would have been most surprised about the fact that she was called Bathsheba
1: I, I think she will like the fact I've called her Bathsheba
3: I'm just gutted that we didn't get uh, the latest Sky Sports innovation. Let's cross live to the Wembley car park and the Sky Sports <laughs> megaphone,
1: Andy Hinchcliffe. Yeah, I tell you what, the game was actually that poor that I could easily have gone into the car park, said nothing, and it would still have en- en- enhanced the game massively.